Hey folks, in this episode I had the chance to sit down with James Davenport from North American Rescue, who's a Special Forces medic, lost his leg in combat, and tells a story of what it's like to live in the legacy of his father who came to America to join the military and live his life in service. He also talks about the importance of passing the message and the lessons on that you get in life. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. All right. So we're rolling. Um, my name is Eddie Molina and this is the call the name of our podcast. So we are in Greenville, South Carolina at the South Carolina Active Attack Conference. And I am sitting with uh, North American Rescue's uh, James Davenport. And we're going to be talking a little bit about medicine and training and gear and what's important at the time you, uh, you need it. Whatever else we get into. Yeah, exactly. All right, James, so uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? I uh, grew up here in the upstate of South Carolina, as you can't tell from the southern accent. Um, uh, was a firefighter paramedic until 9-11, joined the Army shortly thereafter, uh, became an Army SF medic, 18 Delta, and did that for 16 years and then retired after, you know, having a bad hopscotch match with an IED. Oh, so, okay. uh, and now work at North. Cool. So was there a, I guess, are you legacy? Was there, was there a lineage of, of service in your family? Uh, yeah, my dad served 32 years in the Army, uh, retired as a command sergeant major at the 82nd. Um, and then, like, he didn't want that for me. And I kind of steered, steered clear of it for a little while, knowing that there was something always missing, right. you know, from your life um, or my life. And uh, then after 9-11, um, said it, I'd put off, you know, what I was built to do far enough, long enough, and enlisted in the Army. That's so, awesome. Loved yeah. it. Wouldn't change, you know. Um, you know, certainly I wish I hadn't been injured the way I was and had been able to serve longer, but um, God puts us on a path sometimes that, you know, isn't of our liking, so. Yeah, you know, I, 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 was all, I always had a hard time buying into that whole deal. But, man, it just seems like the more and more you actually pay attention to that message, it's true because you end up in those spots where you really need to be. And we're talking a little bit off camera, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll hit that in a little while. But we talk about, we're talking about who's the best surgeon, who's the best medic, who's the best person for you. And just glance where you end up at is yep. very important. So 9-11 hit. You had a, a sense of duty. You got a call to, to join in. And tell me about your path into the military. Where did you go to first when you signed up? Uh, so um, I enlisted in the National Guard. Um, like I had always um, like had a, maybe a, I don't want to say a yearning, but like there was a call to the Special Forces mission, the unconventional warfare piece. It just seemed to call to me. And because of my age at the time, 30, um, they seem to offer a better, you know, path to, um, my Green Beret or a Green Beret than the active military. And so I enlisted in the Alabama National Guard and left a couple months later, uh, for basic training. And so off to Fort Benning, I went. All right. Was that, is that, did they have, was it the x-ray program or what was that? Um, the National Guard had several different 
uh, names for it, uh, Rep 63. Some of them called them the 18 X-ray program. That was really safe for the active army yeah, okay. uh, more than so, not, the, that number doesn't mean anything in the guard. I 18 you. X-ray. So, um, but the term gets or was tossed around a fair bit so, uh, unconventionally. Benning. Okay, so Fort Benning. Yep. So I, that's where you went to first for training. Yep, I did uh, infantry school at Fort Benning and then airborne school and then um, left there for Fort Bragg for uh, a program uh, that was called SOPC or Special Operations Preparedness Course, uh, a preparation course, one of the two, um, that was taught at Bragg by group guys to get 18 x-rays and National Guard guys ready to go to selection. So uh, the idea was that they were going to teach the things that we didn't have time to learn, uh, like other folks that were assessing into special forces from inside the Army. So um, what it ended up being was them teaching probably 90% of what selection was going to be and preparing us to just, you know, uh, pass the test, if you will. Yeah. Did you know that at the time? I mean, when people start teaching this, we go to classes, we go to classes all the time, right? And a lot of times, so I can speak from the law enforcement side. I did 25 years in law enforcement. I can speak from our side. A lot of times you get sent to training you didn't really want to go to, but where you were at, you knew that you wanted to be there. So I'm imagining that it was a ton of training, just kind of uh, like water falling on. So you're just sending stuff to you. Did you realize they were giving you that much information to help you pass the course? <clears throat> well, um, I don't know that they were that it was information that they were passing as much as it was the physical training and getting us ready physically to um, to attend selection. I mean, we pretty much, you know, got kicked in the kicked in the butt uh, seven days a week. So uh, it was more, like I said, physical than it was mental. Okay. So, well, okay. So I get what you're saying. And coming from a, I guess coming from the background where your your dad was a command sergeant major in eighty second, so you were raised in that military mindset. You had you had a different upbringing than a lot of kids out there, so your mental prep preparedness was probably a little bit better than some other. Your your mental outlook on um, training and such, you probably took it in a little bit different. Did you see across the board when you got into that SOPC program? Did you see that there was a lot of people that struggled with the, with the mental part of it? Um. <clears throat> Yeah, there's certainly a fair amount of guys that they either didn't know what being an SF was going to be like, and they thought it was something completely different, or or the amount of time that we were basically kicked in the ass, um, they weren't prepared for either. So uh, every morning um, during formation, instructors would ask, all right, who's ready to quit? And then you had to literally walk up onto a stage with a gong in your hand um, <laughs> and ring a gong and then, you know, collect up your stuff and get ready to go to Korea. So wow. um, at the SOPC program, everybody there was 11 series infantrymen. Um, vice, you know, being at selection, you have every MOS in the, in the Army or military occupation in the Army going through selection with you, cooks and comms guys, engineers, infantrymen, uh, clerks and, you know, Intel guys, all kinds of stuff. So. Wow. All right. So Sopsy, Sopsy, how long, do you remember how long Sopsy was? Four weeks. Four weeks. So that, that's, that's a pretty short time. It's pretty, yeah. you get hammered in that. 
So you go from South Sea to where? Selection. Straight to Selection. Yep. South Sea ends on a Friday. Monday morning, you're at Selection. No kidding. Yep. It was, uh, yeah. Like, the, the idea when they first designed it, because South Sea was actually started by the Guard, and it, was, it had a completely different name, the National Guard, that is. And so the National Guard guys or groups would send guys to Fort Bragg to Sopsy um, to get them ready physically uh, over four weeks, send them the selection, get them back from selection, put them in a, another preparedness course for the next phase of training. And then um, when the Army started up the 18 X-ray program again, they're like, we don't need to create something. It's already here. So uh, they just kind of took that piece over, and it just worked out that, you know, it ends on a, or selection starts on a Monday, it ends on a Friday. So, um, but the, the grand idea is that they push you right up to the point of peaking so that when you're at selection, you're not so beat down that you can't compete um, okay. with with other people of yeah. the same, you know, mindset. So Totally makes sense. So I don't know, I don't know if you grew up, how, if you had both your parents with you, but so I know I had, I had both my parents growing up and when I was fixing to go into the police department, I didn't tell them I had applied, and I let them know. It's like, hey, I'm going through the application process, so someone's going to come and talk to you. Someone's going to come and uh, ask you questions about me. And it's funny. So people expect the uh, the dad to be the hard charger, and you go do it. Good, good for you. My dad was hundred and first, um, and so he. Uh, so it was funny, and for whatever reason in my family, it was reversed. And mom was all about good. I think she probably expected like. Yeah, I'm glad you have a job. That's awesome. But yeah, mom was all about it. And dad was like, are you sure you really want to do this? And so it just for me, it was it was funny because I didn't expect that to be the take. Did you get that reaction from your parents? Um, both my parents were deceased at that time. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure my dad would have been kicking me in the backside. You know, like this is you're you've got a great job. I told don't you just, not to do yeah, that. Yeah, don't oh, like, wow. you know, he was. Um, um, he immigrated here from Israel to join the army in 1942 to go to Germany to kill Germans or to kill Nazis, yeah. which just happened to be German. But, um, and he didn't really talk a lot about his service. So he, he spent from 42 to 74, uh, in the army and then retired. I was a little, you know, tight running around. So I don't remember, uh, much at all about him in service um but he you know along with a lot of folks from that era the um just didn't talk a lot about their service they carried a lot of stuff with them that they probably just did not talk about but, yeah um he felt that he had paid you know enough a price for us that for his whole family yeah, yeah. That we wouldn't have to but um looking back like freedom is something that every generation has to secure for the future generations Wow. And that's I, a huge story. I, you know what? I hadn't, I had not heard a whole bunch of those stories, but I mean, immigrating here to get into the military, to do his part. That's a huge thing. Like you said, the freedom's not, it's not free, obviously. No. Nope. Um, but what a huge story. Do y'all have that written down? Do you have that type of a story written down about your old lineage? Cause that sounds like a, like a, like uh, a great story to pass it, on. It was, it was uh, my dad and four <laughs> brothers. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> got on a ship. Um, Landed in Ellis Island and then joined the Army. Uh, my dad's the only one of the guys that spent a career. Everybody else finished their time um, shortly after World War II was ended and got out and 
um, went to work in, you know, um, all kinds of different industries. Some of them, a couple of them were farmers. So, wow, that's a that's pretty awesome. You know, you talked a little bit about how that generation just learned to keep everything bottled up, and that's just the that's part of part of the, the big change right now is a whole uh, journey in the mental health, uh, the whole mental health area. And it seems like that's opening more and more. It's like the, the newer generations. Um, I know on, on the cop side, we have that talk a lot. Me and my friends have talked about that, man, the next generation, the next generation. And everybody always, all the old guys always have something weak to say about the next generation. But with these things, the whole uh, mental health awareness opening up, I think that the next generation is going to be more well prepared for the afterwards. Because I just don't, like, I, I see a lot of cops coming out of their jobs fighting, you know, fighting the demons. I mean, the stuff that we didn't pay attention to is like, you know, working more than one job at the same time and trying to provide and doing all that. Um, but one of the things that you talked about, you, you talked about your family and you talked about that story. I, I think it's huge. One thing that I wish I had done that I didn't do over my 25 years is had written stories going along. And I tell my friends that I say, if you had, if I had sat and wrote one chapter for every year that I worked, I'd have a 25 chapter book to give to my kids that their kids could give to their kids. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm not an all-star cop. I did. I, I had the chance to do a lot of fun stuff. I worked in special operations units, so I did a lot of cool SWAT stuff. I worked undercover for a while and I had a lot of good times, but I could only imagine what the book would be like from your dad immigrating to come over here to serve and rising to the, you know, the level of command sergeant major. I mean, you can't get higher than that. Uh, no, not unless you have desired to be, uh, Sergeant Major of the Army, which uh, I don't think he was political enough to, you know, get there on his best days, much less at the end of the career. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Man, that's a great story. Man, I'd, lo I'd love to hear more about that. So you pursued Special Forces, and so you go into the selection side, and what was that training like? Cause, I mean, that's I've heard so many stories about that. What was your experience? Um, a lot of physical, a lot of mental. You know, like we don't really talk a whole lot about Selection. The part about selection with SF is you're you show up with either the tools and the temperament needed to do the job, or you don't. A lot of people look at it like, "Well, I wasn't good enough to be in special forces." And there's certainly folks that uh, aren't what SF was looking for. But there's a huge difference between not being the kind of soldier or the, not having the mindset necessary to do that type of work than being a, you know, than being a bad soldier. There's plenty of, of individuals that show up selection, great soldiers, but they don't have the, the temperament or the mindset sure. uh, to, you know, work with indigenous personnel in a foreign language, you know, and, uh, you know, yeah. So like, there's, I've got several stories of guys that were hard chargers, physical studs, but could not take the unconventional nature of selection and it broke them. So uh, it's 24 days long and uh, you're, you know, at the end, if you've not quit, if you quit, you get, they leave you there in a hut across from all the guys that are going through selection so you can watch Every morning when the guys go out to continue to run or, or do ruck marches or team week events, whatever the case wow. may be. So it's not like they're, if they quit, they, you know, are on a vacation. They literally have to sit there and watch us continue to do what they couldn't wow. uh, or chose not to do. So uh, 
Um, but it's certainly not a, you're a bad soldier, that's why you didn't make it in SF or, or didn't get selected. Um, and like I said, much of it is, I think much more of it's mental than it is physical. Sure. So, um, I was talking to a couple of other 18 series guys and they called, uh, they termed it information deprivation. Yep. And holy oh. smokes, I had never heard that before in training. But just thinking about it kind of kind of makes your hair stand up. I mean, I when I had hair, but uh, I mean, it's just it, it's it's wild to think that that's part of uh, part of the smartest part of training there is, oh, because that's that's part of your mission. Yeah, you've got to be capable of working with little information. Yeah. If you're a dress right dress, like have to know everything's going on every minute of the day, it will not be a good time for you at selection, um, and. You know, aside and between that and not being a team player, you know, some guys just don't work well. Um, strong, smart, just don't do well as a team, you know, because yeah. once you put multiple guys together with varying personalities, varying temperaments, all of that stuff comes to play, especially when you're deployed overseas and it's, you know, just the 12 of you, if your team has 12 guys on it, um, surrounded on all the sides by bad guys. So uh, you have to be able to, you know, live for eight months in those conditions with um, a bunch of ambiguity. Yeah. And uh, I would say it's that ambiguity that um, is problematic for a lot of guys. So, so I've asked a question before um, of other guys coming from the special forces side, the special operations side. If you if there's a kid out there watching or listening right now that has the ideas of going forward into uh, into the special operations or special forces side of the military, and they want it, they want to be that kind of person, I've asked that question before. What would you ask them to do? But let me change the question up for you a little bit. What would you advise their parents to do? How would you advise their parents to, to focus? You know what? That's a good question. Um, the hard part is I don't know that it's something you can prepare somebody for, right? Like if I told you we were going to have a test on Monday and told you that it was a math test, you know, to study math, or, you know, you know, if it was a Spanish test or English or whatever the topic is, right? But if I just told you I'm giving you a test on Monday, how do you prepare for the ambiguity of that test? Yeah. You know, so you either... Like I said earlier, a lot of selection is is it's the person that you are, not the person you can prepare to be in a shorter period of time. We all know that if you're going to assess for something like that, you need to be in top physical shape. Yeah. You know, there are people who show up, can't pass a PT test on day one. You know, like when you take a PT test in the Army, they count the reps for you. In At SF selection or at SFAS, Special Forces Assessment Selection, when you take a PT test, they count the first 10 push-ups and the first 10 sit-ups, and you don't get anything else after that 10. Wow. So you don't know how many they're counting, but you know how many you need to do to pass, right, or to get a certain score. So you're either going all the way up and coming all the way down, or you're not. And they're not there to cheat you, um, and they're certainly not there to cheat the regiment. Right. So they're not giving you stuff that you didn't earn, but they won't take anything from you that you don't have to give. So, um, but you have to be, you just, you show up who you are. So um, that's why, like, if you look at the whole of the special forces regiment, 
the type of personalities that are driven into that field are people that can work by themselves with very little um, direction that are focused and that don't die under ambiguous circumstances or or that whose drive isn't diminished by ambiguity. So, um, yeah. All right, cool. That's a, that's a uh, lot. I mean, and, and it's a tough question. So we're talking, well, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about that. And I've asked the same question of different uh, professions or different sides of military and, and the first responder world. But I never think about that. So like, I know that, like, like I said, it's like I've, I had a lot of, of good knowledge coming into me in mean, my upbringing. My parents sent, uh, sent my sister and my, myself to, uh, to a college preparatory high school. And they wanted us all to go to college. And I don't know that that made a difference, or I didn't know that that made a difference at the time. But going forward, it did. I, I saw that it did. Um, and it's just, you know, I just wonder if there, was a, if there was something that you guys would recommend. Because I think that that's important. I think that's an important message for us to send, not just as old people sending it to, to <laughs> other parents, but for, from specialized groups like yourselves. Like, I think that's an important message for us to get out there. And, it's like, and because I do think there would be a better world if we had focus on how we're raising our kids. Oh, I do not disagree with that in the least bit. Um, It's, but again, like um, it's ambiguous, you know, for a reason, like the uh, information deprivation, you know, the instructors, like they didn't come and tell you what you needed to prepare, when you needed to have it ready, blah, 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 blah. It was that you needed to stay prepared to do anything at any time under any circumstance, right? Like a lot of schools in the military, you show up, take a PT t- or in process the course, take a PT test, and then start learning material. You could be 22 days in the selection before you take a PT test. But having done a 10 mile or 12 mile run, you know, twice a week, or a you know 12 to 18 mile ruck march with a 55 pounds plus water uh, twice a week on top of the runs and everything else yeah. um, and then take a PT test at the end and still have to pass the PT test with the same score that you would have if you passed it day one or if you took it day one. So, um, and the instructors, they'd walk out of their hooch, write something on the board, go back in the hooch. They could write, <laughs> they could walk out and write, you know, PT test, PT uniform, 0800. Or they could walk out and write, one loaf of bread, two eggs, spatula. And then somebody's got to run over there, look at the board, and then run back and then pass that message around to all the huts or all the huts where their uh, selectees um, housed. So somebody's always got to be watching that board 24 hours a day. Yeah, and that's, that's where the information comes from, the board. Wow. And then, you, you know, whether you walk out there with your ruck and when you know what the weight is, the weight never changes, but, um, you know, like at the front and at the end, your ruck is weighed. And if it weighs less at the end than it weighed at the beginning, somebody's taking something out of your ruck, i.e. you, yeah. right? Yeah. Or you weighed it and then try to run back in the hooch so you could drop some weight so that then you are rucking with lighter weight. That that crap is not, you know, like that's a uh, that is a definite grab your shit and move to the other hut uh, kind of thing. Because if you will if you will basically screw the rest of the guys and try to participate at a lower level, here, at selection, you will do it downrange. 
you know, fall asleep, uh, fall asleep at watch, not have something, a piece yeah. of material that you're supposed to have, uh, any number, you know, walk around with a phone that has a signal that a tower is looking for in an area where other people, where you shouldn't have a phone. I mean, any number of things. So, um, if, if I was to offer advice to parents, um, it would be to raise them, to raise your children to a standard that, um, that you would be proud of if it was displayed on TV for everybody to see. Hmm. That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah, so, I like that. Um, so I got my backside beat a lot as a kid because, yeah. you know, I, uh, I'm, I have a sm- smart mouth. Like, if you ask me a question, the first thing that comes to my mind is something smart to say. And so I got to beat that back in my head. And, you know, it got beat back into me a lot as a kid. Um, but the one thing that I was never allowed to do is I was never allowed to quit. That's and, awesome. And I yeah. tell, you know, kids today when I'm talking to the youth is that once you quit once, the next time becomes easier. Yeah. And then it becomes a serial problem when it could be nipped at the bud. Like anything that I chose to do as a kid, my dad, there was no quitting. Once you start, I don't care how, he didn't care how bad it sucked, like, uh, or what he had to do to continue to help. Like I was finishing what I started. That's big, yeah, that's a, that's definitely a message I try to ingrain in my kids as we've gone along. Um, and I think that pays off, that pays dividends down the road. So selection, you go, you go through selection, you get assigned, you, you find out right away how you, where you're getting assigned to, or how do you end up going from there? Um, well, because I went through selection as a guard guy, I knew right down to the company where I was going. Um, active guys at that time did not. Uh, so um, later on through the course, we had, we were, or the rest of the guys were notified where they were going, what group, what language they would, you know, end up studying, so forth and so on. And so the language determines the group, or well, the group determines the language as well. But so, um, because each SF group has a regional orientation overseas, the, the languages, like it would make no sense for somebody assigned to seventh group, which is Latin and South America, to take Russian. Right. Um, well, it may uh, here shortly, but uh, <laughs> the times are changing. Yeah, it is. But uh, so they're you know all of those are regionally oriented. So um, most guys, once they got their language, they can figure out where they're going. Right. What was yours? Uh, I took French in the course, okay. and then um, my uh, but was assigned to a company that was signed to South America. So oh, okay. yeah, my first trip overseas was to Colombia. Oh, so, okay. French speaker in Colombia. Yeah, I had a lot of learning fast. Yeah. So, so did you already know you were going to uh, go into the medical side? Uh, yeah. So I had been a firefighter paramedic oh, okay. in, on the civilian side uh, prior to enlisting. And it just seemed, well, I, one, I enjoyed medicine. Um, probably should have been a surgeon at some point, but um, I decided to be a dirt doctor instead. But uh, it just seemed natural that I would continue that education and, you know, be a better medic. Sure. So. Yeah. Okay. So after that, you're going to, was there, what was the, the time span between that before you went to your 18 Delta school? Hmm. Uh, 
I want to say about three months. Yep. So we had, so once I'd done with selection, then the next piece was SOPC part two, which was uh, preparation for small unit tactics, like infantry, advanced infantry tactics, or, or uh, a uh, shorter version of Ranger School. Okay. Um, and then after that, I uh, was my MOS portion, which was the 18 Delta course. Awesome. So, How long was that? 56 weeks. Holy smokes. Wow. Yeah, I've, heard, was, I've heard some uh, some good stories about 18 Delta School. <laughs> what, was, what was the toughest part for you? Uh, oh, toughest part. Well, uh, we talked about this earlier. It was me forgetting what I thought I knew so that they oh, could yeah. teach me what I needed to know. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of folks that are either nurses, medics, PAs that, that go to the 18 Delta course and it doesn't work out well for them because they refuse to unlearn certain things or learn them a different way. Right. So, um, as a matter of fact, we had a PA in our, in our class that did not, he did not make it. No kidding. Nope. He quit, but, um, it, that's as good as, you know, getting kicked out. He just would yeah. not, you know, just refused to unlearn certain things. So do you feel like the, the stuff that, and you had to unlearn stuff to, to learn it back a different way. Do you feel like it was packaged better when you got it back the second time? Uh, I wouldn't say it's packaged better, but learning to, you know, I could give you tons of examples, but combat medicine and paramedicine from a civilian EMS side is wholly different. Um, not just the under gunfire part, but a paramedic arrives on scene to a car accident or, or chest pain, whatever the patient is, he drove an entire toolbox to the call with him. In the field, I can't carry all of that stuff that's in an ambulance in my aid bag. So I have to choose how to pack my aid bag to cover the most amount of, of injuries I can that would induce, um, uh, that would that the patient would die from at the end of the day um, in a small a section as possible in my aid bag. So you learn to, instead of having single use, a whole bunch of single use items, carrying items that you can have, that have multiple purposes. Okay. So like um, at the time we didn't, there wasn't a commercially available pelvic binder for pelvic fracture. So I would take a aluminum malleable SAM splint, fold it lengthwise, and then cut slits in it that I could weave a tourniquet through, wrap around the patient's pelvis, and then pull it tight to close their pelvis back down in open pelvic fractures, wow. open book pelvic fractures. So vice having a one item that does just that. And yeah. then when it's separate, the SAM splint's a SAM splint. I can use it for ankles, wrists, forearms, humerus fractures. Uh, the only really thing you can't use it for is a femur fracture. But, uh, and then the tourniquets, just that, a tourniquet. So, um, but they have different uses, you know, completely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so we, we talked uh, we talked a little bit off camera before about how the training has evolved. So I, I'm guessing it was 2002 then when you went through 18 Delta School? Uh, 2003. 2003. So from 2003 to now, we're, what's it, 2022, right? Yep. So almost 20 years later... <laughs> What's the biggest change? Because I know you're still involved. So you work at North American Rescue and one of the biggest distributors or manufacturers of medical supplies. And I know we see a lot of it out there in the training in the training world and in the first responder world. 
What's the biggest change? Or let me ask you this. Is it has there been a bigger change in the training or in the equipment? Oh, <clears throat> that's a tough question. Yeah. Um, equipment has, uh, I think the equipment, like, yeah. you know, um, between the, ma- the the high fidelity man- mannequins, the AI that go into um, ultrasounds and things of that nature, it has increased exponentially to meet the demand. Uh, like if you couldn't start an IV during the course, back when we were in the course, you just you, the guy got stuck a whole bunch of times. Like we didn't have IV arms. Um, so we just practiced on each other, you know, sometimes in the middle of class, sometimes in, P, you know, we do trauma PT. And so you go for a long run or carry somebody on a, on a fold up litter while you're wearing gas masks. And uh, once you set them down, everybody had to have an IV started in their ankle or, you know, like it was always someplace painful, like right. as opposed to the, you know, the meaty part of the forearm uh, or the antecubital area. So, um, but the training adjuncts has not only training adjuncts, but the equipment that is being carried today on the battlefield has just improved exponentially. And so with that, the training has to improve. Um, you know, it was bad enough. We had to carry, you know, hundred pounds worth of stuff in a 25 pound bag. Now you've got, you know, more. So, um, but I, you know, that's a hard question. Yeah. Which one's improved most? Like I, the equipment, absolutely. One of the things that I think has, has, I wouldn't say improved, but people expect that there's a device to do everything. And oftentimes that's not the case, especially in public safety. Um, oftentimes that's not the case. Right. And so, you know, sometimes the simplest solution is really the simplest solution. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, what we call sticks and rags, splinting and putting bandages on people is still useful regardless of, uh, how far that stuff moves forward. Sure. So I got you. So what was the biggest change in training that you've seen from, the, from your time at starting? Hell, you had, you had a lot of medical training before you went into the military as well, but up to now, what's the biggest change in training that you've seen? Hmm. Biggest change in training or biggest improvement. Um, gosh, that's another hard question. Uh, the ability to have feedback immediately from some from a, either a mannequin or a training adjunct that tells you if you're doing it right or not, instead of having to wait to the end to see if you know see if you've done it right. So, okay. like I mentioned earlier, like uh, training mannequins. Um, with I was in the course, um, there was talk about mannequins replacing. Uh, some of the training aids that we used um, at the time we thought it would be detrimental to the force to replace some of the more realistic training with um, with mannequins but right. they've moved so the technology has moved so far forward that uh, I don't know that it, that that differentiation exists today the way we we viewed it to uh, earlier in my career so um, you know, like we have mannequins today that the chest rises and falls on one side or the other. So 
you're trying to simulate a tension pneumothorax, yeah. patient shot in the chest. Um, like you can make one side rise and the other side's not, side not, vice me putting stickers on a, on a role player, laying them on the ground, and then they can't simulate that, yeah. right? So instead of just being like, well, what's, what's you know, contralateral chest movement look like? You know, where one side does something, the other side doesn't, yeah. or opposite. <clears throat> and so, like, you can actually show um, the students what that would look like, or lung sounds, things, so you don't have to listen to, you know, two, 3,000 patients, so that you know the variations in lung sounds different patients having different problems. Now that's important because you still need to listen to them, um, but we have better tools to train medics on and, and physicians for that matter today than, than we've ever had. So um, yeah, mannequins. So, so medicine is a very specialized training. And I know that in the special forces, you all have eighteen deltas and that, that's the medical specialist. But the Special Forces has a way of making sure that everybody knows a little bit about everybody else's job. And that's very important, small team tactics, small team community. Um, but I do know that back in where only certain guys went to the Combat Lifesaver School, right? And only certain people, I know that on the, on the law enforcement yeah, <laughs> I love it. On, on the law enforcement side, some guys had medical training. If you went to medical training, then the tourniquet started coming out and everybody started getting a little bit of training. But now it seems like everybody's getting medical training at some, at some point, more advanced medical training, which I love seeing out on the first responder side. We push out a ton of more advanced medical training as well. And it also seems like back in the day, you could only do medical training in certain places. And it seems like now, especially you guys have taken it out to the field and we're going to go train where you're going to go fight. What have you noticed about those types of changes, or has that been pretty consistent across the board? Like I said, you guys were probably ahead of the curve on that, but have you seen those kinds of changes on the military side as well? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, a lot of EMS was speaking specifically for the public safety side of things. Like uh, um, back in the day, a lot of that training was didactic in nature, and so you would watch videos or listen to a lecture, and there wasn't a lot of hands-on, and so but you were expected to be able to perform without ever, <clears throat> excuse me, without ever having put your hands on it before, just watching a video, right? And there's nothing more than I, that I hate than, than an expectation for performance when you've never performed to that expectation, yeah. right? So we were talking earlier about tourniquets, right? Like, so um, the, today there's training tourniquets that you can, beat the crap out of with application over and over and over and never have to worry about um, ruining a functional tourniquet or that functional tourniquet that you're going to wear on your kit every day, taking it to the field after you've applied it a thousand times to somebody else or mannequins or, or role players and then have it break on you. And so um, it's um, watching people, you know, there's nothing that replaces performance sure. on demand, yeah. I would say. I know when we started, a, we started a, a good medical training program at, at Alert, and we were pushing out, um, we did tourniquets, you know, we did obviously opening airways, um, stopping the bleeding and all, but we were doing wound packing. And at the time when we were teaching wound packing, there was a ton of EMS units across the country where that was just not allowed. 
It wasn't allowed here in South Carolina until just a few years ago. And, and it's crazy because that seems to be the standard now. It's like, if you don't at least know how to do that, how are you going to actually stop the bleeding if you can't get to the bleeding? Right. So I was uh, I was invited to come to, we had, I had some friends that were PJs that were working in a cadaver lab. And I was like, come on, do, you know, do that over here on a real body. Right. And that experience, so they said, you're going you're to come to, to train with us, but you may end up having to teach some of the guys that are here. I was like, what the hell? I was like, I have no credibility in teaching that stuff. It's like, yeah, but you've done it more times in training than the, the EMTs that we're about to teach. And these are guys that were coming from, from my hometown fire department that had no experience with wound packing. And we were running them through wound packing drills on bodies. And it was like, it was something brand new for them. So cadaver lab training was just unreal. What kind of experience was that for you guys? Uh, so um, I love cadaver labs. Yeah. Uh, the first time, my first time in a cadaver lab was during the 18 Delta course. And uh, let me step back and say, like, even if you go to a paramedic program that's a four-year bachelor's degree program, like, the vast majority of them across the U.S. still don't use cadavers. It's still two-dimensional anatomy. And there is nothing, nothing that replaces three-dimension, being able to see it in the body from different aspects. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, um, but with respect to the to the wound packing piece, you've got to get your hands in people. Yeah. Um, to practice wound packing. Like there's all kinds of adjuncts, um, task port trainers and whole mannequins that you can do wound packing on, but no amount of silicone moves like real tissue. Yeah. Yeah. That, and it's neat. I've seen, I've seen some really, I've seen some really cool training so, tools that are coming out now. Yeah. I actually talked to some of the guys from a different uh, distributor and, and they're talking about their products are sending them out there and that's great. But yeah, until you get your hands on and somebody's actually been shot. Right. It's a different experience. And it's it, hopefully it's not your first experience. Well, you know, it's funny you bring that up. I, when I'm teaching, like I talk a lot about um, the amount of people I treated downrange yeah. or when I was deployed. And I would take every opportunity to treat um, host nation folks, whether they were host nation partner forces or it was the enemy. But if I got to see a wound on them before I got to see it on one of my guys, I was taking every opportunity I had to treat those wounds yeah. because I didn't want it to be one of my dudes that was the first time I got to see that wound. Yeah. Um, and you get some practice at it. It's, you know, wound packing isn't all that it's made out to be, you know, like um, it hurts, you know, as being somebody who's had a very significant wound packed in the field, um, it is quite painful. Wow. Uh, so, you know, most, and that's one of the topics that I think is passed over with a lot of wound packing is how are you going to stabilize that patient? Meaning how are you going to keep them from, you know, right crossing or left hooking you yep. while you've got your hands buried in their pelvis or in their armpit axilla region all the way up to the wrist trying to get at a, an artery, yeah. right? Like that crap hurts. Yeah, and in, so, the, in the movies, it seems easy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just like uh, tension pneumothorax and uh, King of, uh, what was that? Um, dang it, movie from the 90s. King of, ah, uh, George Clooney movie. Oh, okay, with, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like Mark Wahlberg. Ice Cube. And, yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. yeah. I got you, yeah. Um, just, with that, you know, like, the, honestly, that's the best representation of a tension pneumothorax reacting to being, uh, having a needle drill or, um, 
a needle force and thesis. Yeah. That I've ever seen. As a matter of fact, that that video was used in the 18 Delta course for a while <laughs> uh, until we had some better videos. So, awesome. and I've used it once or twice myself, but um, yeah. Yeah, in real life, there's a lot more screaming, oh, a yeah. lot more moving. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, you, if you have the opportunity to get a live rep, you do a live rep. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, on that note, so when we're teaching law enforcement officers, I tell them all the time, I'm like, hey, guys, two things about treating, you know, guys that you've shot, possibly. Yeah. One, if you're treating the injury that you just caused by taking it to lethal force, they, you completely remove the idea from everybody standing around that you're trying to kill the person because otherwise you wouldn't be trying to save their life. And two, now you get to treat a wound that otherwise you may not get to treat another time before you have to do that exact same skill on a coworker, yeah. you know, or your partner for uh, Lord's sake. So like take every opportunity you can to get your hands bloody. Yeah, you gloves know, on. I've had, a, I've had that <laughs> opportunity having to treat one of the bad guys and it's funny that I had that same, the same thing that you just said was something that the DA's reps came to talk to us about. They said, what you guys do here now is unquestionable. Right. It's like you just showed it on, on video. You just showed exactly your own, your own yep. um, what your mission is. And, and that's awesome because like a week after that happened, two weeks after that happened, I was teaching the class with an 18 Delta and he was talking about getting live reps. And he said, yeah, man, it's like you get a live rep, you, get, you go do it. And you, you want to get your hands in there as much as possible. So training has changed. The gear has changed. Um, what was your first big experience out there, um, Ben? You got sent out. You got sent to 18 Delta School. I mean, we're right in the middle of post 9-11 stuff. So I'm sure it wasn't long before you got sent out. What was the first experience like? Because, I mean, I know everybody sees the movies and everybody talks about it. When you're going through training, you had a lot of guys who were probably experienced operators who were pushing you all through training. What was it like for you? The training or operational? Your first operation. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, nothing nothing replaces that first time you've been shot at or, or yes, being actually shot at. Like, yeah. there's a difference. Uh, there's a large difference between hearing gunshots being fired and then being fired at you. Yeah. You know, and um, this wasn't my first experience, but it's a, it's a fairly funny one. Um, on the rotation to Afghanistan where I lost my left leg, which we haven't talked about yet, but uh, I stepped on an IED um, uh, during a game of hopscotch. And um, not really. Yeah. Anyway, I so I stepped on an IED, lost a leg. Um, and so uh, earlier in that rotation, uh, part of our element moved forward to start doing all the handover of equipment with the team that we were replacing. And a couple of days later, uh, me and the rest of the guys flew in and um, that day they had planned a resupply, and so we were in a place called uh, Kajur, Afghanistan. It's a little, looks like a bowl on the map, um, and we're surrounded on all sides by bad guys, exactly where SF guys are supposed to be. Yeah. Um, and so, like I said, we get resupplied by air. They'd fly over, push some pallets out the back with parachutes. we go out, you know, collect them up, put them on the back of a truck with a forklift, um, and then drive back in our compound with them and, you know, uh, that way. So, um, we were, had just, had, I had just landed and they were getting ready to go out on the resupply and I hopped on a Polaris Ranger with one of my other team guys. Um, and we 
ran out there and we're standing out there talking a little bit and one of the uh, Terps starts running past us and I'm like, where are you going? He goes, he goes, we're about to be ambushed. And I'm like, from where? I get about where out of my mouth and I hear in the distance, and uh, I turn to look at Dave and right as I turn to look at Dave, like rounds are striking at my, at both of our feet and we start doing a little happy dance a little bit and then we move around behind the uh, Polaris Ranger uh, where our weapons were. And uh, I'll never forget like um, us making jokes about being shot at that day, um, which wasn't, you know, which became an almost everyday occurrence thereafter, but uh, right up until I got blown up. But um, being, yeah, again, being fired at is, you know, not something that you will ever forget. Um, it's something to watch it happen or see it impacting around you, but to hear it either come past you or at your feet, a wholly different, wholly different thing. Um, so, uh, honestly, that's one of my most memorable deployments. First one was to South America. I said that earlier, and then, uh, some deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. But my first deployment was great because I got to do the SF thing, uh, from the foreign internal defense side where we were training Colombian soldiers uh, to continue to defend their nation um, in, a, in another language. And then, uh, and then trips to Iraq and Afghanistan uh, where we were involved in direct combat. But um, it's, uh, it's an eye opener. Yeah. So I know you say you've been injured several times and obviously the, uh, the last one was probably the biggest one. What was the, aside from the leg, what was the more memorable or the most memorable injury? <laughs> uh, well, that one was, uh, you know, that one was very memorable. Um, uh, probably, the ne you know, the next memorable one was two weeks earlier than that, literally 14 days, eight hours and six minutes apart. Um, I was in a, a um, MATV, which is like, um, it's an up-armored vehicle that, I would say looks a lot like a Lamborghini had sex with an with an MRAP or right. upper armor. You know I what an MRAP you. is? Yeah. Yeah. So if you had if you cross a Lamborghini and an MRAP, you end up with an MATV. They're shorter, wider, squattier, um, fit five dudes. There's a gunner in the middle with a uh, a gun above him with a whole bunch of screens. So wherever wherever he turns, the screens follow, and he's looking through a camera and it's being input onto the screen. So. Um, a bunch of advanced, you know, hardware, um, and I was in the uh, truck commander seat, the TC seat, which is the right front seat, and we were uh, going to do a meeting with um, some folks in a village not too far from where uh, we were in Kajar, and drove over a uh, command detonated IED, and um, uh, IED went off right underneath the uh, passenger front wheel or, or right in front of where I was sitting, uh, opened the open passenger door, partially ejected me out of the door. And then I, I um, took a piece of the roll cage from under the vehicle in the back of my left leg. So the same leg that I would end up losing uh, 14 days later, six minutes later. So um, got evac to the same hospital, like vehicle got hit, got out of the vehicle, returned fire, uh, we ended up killing the guy that shot or that set off the ID with a Carl Gustav or 82 millimeter rocket round 
Um, it was an airburst round that just basically exploded over top of him and just turned him into pink mist. But, um, and then uh, myself and the gunner that was in the truck got him back together. That was his like fifth IED incident. Um, and he was, you know, talking about having mashed potatoes for breakfast. So um, I'm like, yeah, you got to go too. Uh, so, um, the team sergeant from our team, uh, because I can't see, you know, I can't torque myself around to see the back of my left knee. He ended up treating me, uh, that time and ended up treating me the second time as well. Um, yeah. So got evac'd, had a piece of steel removed from the leg, you know, team sergeant says it was a soda can, but, uh, so, you know, soda cans don't make holes like that, but, um, I think that was more of a joke about the soda can. Uh, just get underneath my skin, <laughs> as he says. So, um, yeah, it was quite quite memorable two weeks, it was. So 14, so, uh, 14 days, eight hours, and six minutes later. Yep. Tell me about that. Oh, so um, we were going out to take care of some unexploded ordnance, and um, which are, like, could be any number of things, like IEDs that were found or, or um, rocket-propelled grenades being fired that, hit the ground and it don't explode. Um, <clears throat> made a little patrol. We had split the element was coming back into town and went to um, move down an alleyway um, to lay some scunion on some bad guys and went to hop over a ditch at mid sprint and um, stepped on the pressure, uh, the device on the near side of the ditch and it went off underneath me as I was spread eagle over top of it, uh, severed my left leg uh, about mid tibia, about midway down the, the uh, lower leg, um, blew a you know, roughly six inch hole in my perineum or taint, pardon the term. Um, and then it, it sat me down on my backside. I set up, looked around, I'm like, you know, what was that? I thought it might've been an RPG fired into the alleyway, uh, oftentimes when, RPG, the motor runs out of propellant, like you'll never hear it until it hits, as opposed to hearing it or by um, if it's under power when it comes past you. So I thought maybe one had fallen at my feet and went off basically where I was standing and uh, it hadn't, I'd stepped on it. So um, like I said, severed the left leg below the knee, blew a big old hole in my pelvis. I mean, fractured my pelvis in seven places um, a bunch of small or soft tissue injuries to uh, everything from the my left lower leg to my left forearm. The inside of my right leg was completely um, messed up from shrapnel. Um, and then uh, planted me on my backside. Um, I, you know, radioed that I'd been, you know, that I was down. And my team sergeant comes running up the same alleyway that I had just, um, where I was just at, uh, doing absolutely the wrong thing. Thankful that he did it, though. Um, thankful that he did so. Um, and uh, started treating me for, you know, bleeding out from my pelvis. Um, was, had severed both the left internal and the right common iliac arteries. Um, and was bleeding pretty friggin' profusely. Um, so he, he took to treating those. I was asking him if my junk was okay. That was the only thing I was concerned with. Yeah, question, hey, yeah. it, 1% my backside, you know, like that crap's important, 
you know. So, I, like I've never co- contemplated suicide. Like that may be that may be the 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 one to do it though. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, I can see like, that. That's anyway. Um, so we um, the next guy to me was the Afghan, my com- uh, temporary on their side, the Afghan special forces medic that I'd spent the, the last. Um, couple months, you know, training and helping every day. Uh, he hopped off of, he was manning a 50 cal on the backside of our compound and uh, a pair of Adidas slip-in shower shoes and a pair of white BVDs. Wow. That was all he was wearing. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yep. And then he came over, like he's, you know, they're working on me and him, he's standing right over me. Um, and uh, they ended up picking me up by my belt, putting me on this, on a uh, a talon litter that's made by North American Rescue and uh, carried me inside the compound, put me on the back of a Polaris uh, six by six. And they rode me up uh, to the front of the compound on the back of the six by six. And then they set me, they picked me up and set me on the ground on the stretcher. And then the, the young infantry guy that was, we had like uh, 11 infantry guys there that were providing security and they go out on missions with us and whatnot. So he hops on the Polaris, goes to put it in gear, puts it in reverse, and tries to back the rear two wheels up over top of my chest. And I'm like, really, can this go any worse today? It's okay. You can laugh. Like, you know, like other guys around are like, really? Like, like a Chevy Chase. Oh, yeah. Movie. Yeah. Like uh, one of the, um, the senior Bravo from the team, uh, Pablo Rodriguez, like stepped up and tried to like deadlift the back of the Polaris, you know, to keep it from sitting on my chest. And I'm like, today can't get much worse. Like, we're... You know, so well, I was going to ask you. I mean, do you remember like come all you stayed you stayed conscious yep. for the whole thing? You said you got on the radio to, to radio in. Yeah. So, so I've got a friend who was run over. He's a he's a cop, and they were on the way home from a visit to the hunting lease and all. And he ended up they were stopping to help people out. He got run over. A uh, flatbed trailer basically ran over the top of him. He ended up losing his leg, but he says, I remember every bit of it. He said it didn't knock me out. I was in pain, and I remember going through it. Obviously, you were in pain. You had a lot of injuries, big injuries, and you were bleeding out. Let's go back to the training. If you hadn't had the level of training that you guys had, what would the difference have been? Because, I mean, I think I think um, it all goes back to the training. You're, like, people would say you'll rise to the occasion, and I think it's complete BS. I think you yeah. fall back to exactly how you were trained. Pardon the phrase, but yeah. life is not a Viagra commercial. Yeah. Ain't nobody rising to the occasion. Yeah. Um, you fall back to the level of training that you show proficiency at, right? So, like, um, we talked about tourniquets earlier and people applying them. There's a lot of dudes who will say, hey, it's a tourniquet, how hard can it be, right? But while you're either under fire and you're trying to treat somebody who you have an emotional attachment to, or you're trying to treat yourself with something that you have never used, it is not going to go well. Yeah. You know, um, working through um, malfunctions with a firearm, you know, like whether it's a pistol or a carbine, if you if you've never practiced that, like it's not going to go well. Yeah. Um, I mean, any number of um, scenarios like it has to be practiced. Yeah. Our psyche works that way for a reason. Uh, so um, some of it I wish I hadn't had. The amount of training, the medical training, because I knew exactly what I, you know, what was yeah. bleed, what I was bleeding from. 
Um, but I'm very thankful that my team sergeant uh, at the time wasn't an 18 Delta. Uh, he was not acting like, I say he wasn't acting like an 18 Delta. He was, he was the team sergeant. He carried an aid bag, but I was the primary medic. So he was, he was there as the backup in the event that I was overwhelmed, which I was that day. Um, and um, it, like, I remember from me stepping on the device, aside from the confusion about whether it went off at my feet or whether it went off underneath my feet, um, I remember every bit of it. Yeah. Um, I'm very thankful I remember every bit of it. Um, have no, you know, clearly make jokes about it. Yeah. None of that stuff, you know, people ask all the time, they're like, how do you make jokes about stuff like that? And I'm like, that's just my personality. Like, if I didn't, there would be a problem. Oh, you know, the day yeah. I stopped making jokes about, you know, playing hopscotch with an IED is the day that people need to worry about my psyche. But yeah. as long as I'm making jokes about it, we're good. So, you, so a couple of things, uh, we talked about different levels of medics earlier, but with your level of experience, you know, you know how much time you had with those injuries, the amount of blood you were losing. Um, if you can, number one, hit on how much time you actually had, had you not had somebody there that close to start providing medical uh, care for you. But the other thing that we talked about, and I had brought this up to our, our medical director is Jeff Kane. And he's got a lot of experience in, in that type of medicine. And I've asked him before, it's like, who's the best medics out there? And I throw the, the SEAL medics and the 18 Deltas and the Corpsmen, the PJs. And, and we talked a little bit about that. We talked to that. Can you maybe hit on, number one, how much time you actually had to live if somebody hadn't been there for you and the level of, tra of training that those guys got? Why you think training is so important? So, um, let me first uh, kind of start um, on the timeline piece. The, uh, <clears throat> um, one of the pieces I didn't touch on previously, like from the amputation, like my leg wasn't bleeding. Um, well, let me rephrase that. It wasn't bleeding the way people think it would bleed if you had a traumatic amputation like that. It was, it was dripping, but nothing major. And one of the things that I see people do all the time is they will see an amputation. And if you say, say, is it bleeding? And you say, it's just dripping. They will bypass the amputation and, do, and go to work on something else and forget about the amputation. Amputations get tourniquets, no question, uh, whether it's bleeding or not. Because if it's not bleeding, it's because it's, the vascular has tightened down around it or the heat has cauterized the uh, smaller vessels, or they're completely out of blood and they're dead. So there's only three instances that it won't bleed. But if they still have blood in their body, it will eventually start bleeding. And if you bypass it to go on to something else or someone else, um, that may, you know, you may either forget about it or they bleed out before you get back to them. So those things get treated regardless of whether you see them bleeding actively or not. After that, um, I would probably say, you know, aside from the tourniquet part, three, four minutes, yeah, most. Uh, like it was, it was bleeding pretty good, uh, you know, on its own. Um, got a whole bunch of combat gauze packed inside my pelvis, um, despite the other pain that I was experiencing from 
uh, a left forearm injury, you know, soft tissue injury in my pelvis, lower leg and my right leg. Uh, I still felt every movement of his hand inside of me. Um, luckily, you know, um, uh, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I guess I'm just built tough. I don't know, you know, people ask all the time, like, how did you take that much pain? And I'm like, I don't know that I was taking it as much as, you know, uh, like it was a choice yeah. kind of thing, right? So, um, but a couple minutes and then from a training perspective, you have to see wounds. Like if you've never seen somebody's pelvis injured like that, the first couple minutes are probably not going to go well. Um, the recognizing what's bleeding and then knowing what needs to be done about it is is paramount to that casualty surviving. And then, um, you know, knowing how much blood they've lost, being able to estimate that loss as a medic and then know how much fluid to give or withhold from that patient um, from non-compressible bleeds because like a tourniquet is an immediate compressible issue. You can just, I mean, an amputation, you can put a tourniquet around it, the limb and stop the bleeding, right? Anytime you're packing a wound, you may or may not be as good at that as you think you are. And oftentimes it will not show itself in a large cavity like the pelvis. Like you could, you know, uh, lose a third of your circulating blood volume inside your pelvis and never bleed outside the pelvis. So uh, those patients you don't want to give a lot of blood to, or not blood, but a lot of fluid to, because you don't want their blood pressure blowing any clots that you've built through the wound packing process. Gotcha. So, <clears throat> but um, back to the medic piece, uh, Kurt, my team sergeant at the time, had spent uh, a lot of time over behind the fence at Fort Bragg uh, with a tier one unit and uh, had just come over to 7th Group um, to pick up eight and become a team sergeant. But um, he, uh, he was the primary caregiver all the way up to the end when I got on a helicopter. Uh, he... Uh, Treated everything that was life-threatening. One, uh, Pablo Rodriguez, the Bravo or the weapons guy, was you know trying to bandage my stump. Um, that was quite frankly painful. Uh, bone ends rubbing together and all. Um, and then, um, and then I, you know, at some point I said, uh, I said I, I can't take any more. Pain. Like I've had enough pain. Like I can't. I got to have something for pain. And he started. A, he started the sternal IO intraosseous on me um, and gave me a little pain meds, a little ketamine, a uh, little fentanyl. And um, and then it, things are kind of spotty until I got on the helicopter. And then the rest of the team, uh, right before I got on the helicopter, they landed and then they said a little prayer. Uh, and then, you know, the next time I saw them was on VTC video teleconference uh, from my hospital room at Walter Reed. Um, the best medic is the one that's there when you need them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a bad medic can oftentimes be a better medic than no medic, but um, you know, regardless of whether it's a medic, uh, somebody who has just taken a TECC class, uh, stop the bleed, uh, the person that has the tools at the time that are needed is the best one to have. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's a, a that's the huge message for all of you guys out there with the skills. 
It's, it's a great skill to have, but if you're not passing that information on, if you're not sharing with people, if you're not getting people up to your level or close to your level, if you're not giving that yep. out, you're holding it and you're not, I mean, you can't take it with you. I mean, you can, oh, no, but it's not going to help. Yeah. You. It's like money. You yeah. ain't taking it to the other side. Yeah. It's you just dumb. Yeah. 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 If you hadn't put in time with the, with those guys and really, and really turn that, uh, that Afghan into uh, a special forces medic. I mean, who knows what would have happened? All your guys there, everybody else. But like you said, it's, it's the guy who's there to treat you is the right. one that's the most important one out there. Um, and we talked to you know, to the level. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, like the, the you know that there was some language barriers. Like I spoke Pashto, um, but it wasn't great. Yeah. Um, it's about like my Spanish. I can make do getting a beer into the bathroom, and that's about it. Um, but uh, every morning I spent with that guy doing sick call on his dudes. And he learned through watching, like he would come up, watch me do sick call on the infantry guys, you know, from foot problems to a litany of other issues that they cause themselves throughout the day or night. Yeah. And, um, uh, but like being a part of the edge, whether you're the person that's being educated or you're just watching it takes place is better than none. And, uh, but like all of those life, um, treatments that will either end with somebody living or dying, like tourniquet placement, wound packing, chest seals uh, for penetrating trauma to the chest. If you don't spend time looking at people um, and figuring out where the, where the places are that you will miss if you don't look, you will miss. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, most common place for a gunshot wound to be missed in a female is underneath her breast. Guys don't want to move, don't want to touch women's breasts, yeah. you know, for fear of getting sued. But yeah. I would rather get sued um, and the person live than not and and they die because then I got to carry that all, you know, with me every other day. Um, and guys, it's in in and around their, their groin. Yeah. So, again, there's a lot of big vessels that run through that area. And if you don't uh, know where those are, you need to... Uh, familiarize yourself with them. Sure. Um, so, and then just practicing with what you carry, you know, simple stuff like tourniquet drills, like regardless of how many tourniquets I, I have applied overseas and here in the States, like I still do tourniquet drills. Anytime my, my SWAT team guys are doing, doing medicine, I'm doing medicine. Um, you know, it doesn't take, it doesn't have to be all day, be small stuff. And then Finding for the non-medical personnel, finding ways that they can um, rationalize uh, treatments with injury patterns. You know, uh, so like um, like if we're on the range doing uh, pistol and carbine stuff, I may talk about gunshot wounds to the chest. If we're doing uh, explosive breaching, maybe talk about TBIs, traumatic brain injury, and overpressure or um, any number of lung injuries from overpressure. Um, it's things of that nature so that folks that aren't medical or that don't have the experience and training, like some of that stuff sticks. It'd be, you know, like it's really odd how people associate injuries with training, right? Yeah. So you may never see another gunshot wound and, you know, somebody say something on a podcast or in a training that just piques your interest and it sticks. Um, but it is certainly important to keep your hands busy 
when yep. you're in medicine, if you're involved in it, uh, from across public safety, fire, EMS, law enforcement guys, you know, nobody joins law enforcement to be a paramedic. I get it, right? But nobody wants to go home having watched their partner die because they didn't want to do something. Yeah, that's absolutely. a whole lot worse problem to have. Yeah, I think those, you know, speaking to that side, it's like one of those things. It's like if we're going to train you to, um, like you talked about earlier, treating somebody you caused a wound on, somebody you had to shoot, if you could do that, like if you can cause this kind of injury, if we're not teaching you how to treat that kind of injury because absolutely. those kind of injuries may be coming on us, then we're selling you short. Absolutely. And that's one of those things. I think that all everybody is being taught how to or going through their license to carry classes. I think mm. they should have to go through stop the bleed sessions. All the other things should be the same. Well, you've had an endless amount of training. You've had cra- go ahead. That, no, I was just going to say, according to FBI statistics, a law enforcement officer is far more likely to apply a tourniquet than they are to use that firearm. Yeah. And if you mm-hmm. carry the one you're least likely to use, why wouldn't you know how to use the one you're most likely to use? Yeah. So. Yeah, and you know, you've had endless amounts of training. You have crazy amounts of injuries. Meaning <laughs> you are, and you actually work in, you're still working in the field. You work at North American Rescue, who I think is one of the, the, the best manufacturers out there. The, the, Thank you. The products that you all push out there are great. They're phenomenal products. But if James Davenport's going to hold a class on what to carry for, uh, for a standard loadout for a civilian, for the standard soccer mom driving her kids to soccer practice, what do you put in their go bag? Mm. Uh, two tourniquets, set of chest seals, a roll of duct tape, because medical tape sticks to two things, gloves in itself, um, a bunch of Band-Aids, uh, a little mole scan for soccer, you know, foot sliding around in the shoe, yep. um, combat gauze, and an ace and a couple ace wraps and maybe a Sam splint. All right, and that's a good list of it's a good list of products. And I told you earlier, I, I had the chance to sit with some of the rescue guys from Honolulu, and um, they laughed when I asked them, "What do you what do you suggest that these when they're heading out on the trails there in Hawaii? What do you want them to what do you want to see them carrying?" And they laughed because they said they've seen people with these great medical bags when they go hiking and they end up ditching them out on the trail because yep. they're just too damn heavy for them. But a lot of people carry stuff that they just don't know how to use. So I think it's most important for us to leave that message out there for everybody. It's like, man, if you're going to carry tourniquets, go to the get some, yeah, yep. get some training. Absolutely. And there's tons of videos out there. You I mean, just you guys put them. videos out there. Yeah. Yep. I mean, we got everything that we carry has a video attached to it at yep. some point. Um, especially the all the advanced stuff, needles uh, for like the spear for tension hemothorax or um, uh, IO devices. Like there's, you know, I don't expect a soccer mom to be running around with an IO device unless she's a nurse or, you know, paramedic. But, um, but even still, uh, it's the small things. There has to be a balance between what you're most likely to use yeah. and what you can't get, get survive without. Sure. And so the, the band-aids and neosporin on one end to tourniquets and chest seals on the other. Now, I mean, chest seals are, are good for a litany of other things than just putting on, you know, penetrating trauma in the chest that you be used to hold on. You cut to pieces, used for mole skin yeah. in a pinch or, you know, same thing with tape. Medical tape's horrible uh, in the field, especially if you're wet or sweaty or bloody. Uh, duct tape sticks to everything. Yeah. You know, so... Um, but 
knowing how to use the items that you do carry, you know, is uber important. Uh, I've heard people say, well, you can, you know, you should carry a bunch of stuff. That way, if somebody shows up, they have stuff to use. Well, if you don't know what it is and what it's used for, you're probably not going to mention it when somebody shows up. It's, you know, right. like dump, dump the bottom out of the trash can and hope that you come across something that you know how to use. Yeah. Just get training. It's too easy. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and that's it. Like I said, if you have that amount of training, pass it on to somebody. I've got cool videos of my kids doing a cover and move drills. Oh, that's awesome. With and without tourniquets on themselves. And it's just, you know, it's like, hey, I've learned how to do this now. I'll teach you all how to do this. And you guys need that kind of training at some point, And I didn't pass that on to you. I feel, I feel worthless. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, I have a daughter that's in college and it's much the same way. Like, I mean, she has body armor in her car. She's got a, uh, a get home bag. Yeah. A, a few other items. That, oh, yeah. I got um, you. You know, um, but if she, it does her no good to have a bunch of stuff that she can't use. I mean, you know, like changing oil in your car. Yeah. So, uh, you know, or having a spare tire in your car. If you don't know how to change it, and you, you know, especially as a man, um, but uh, you should know how to change your tire. Yeah. How to, you know, put fuel in your vehicle, change the oil, or at least add oil if you're low, kind of things. And every bit of every one of those things could have life altering effects if you can't, you know, you take a, a trip too far from home. Yeah. So. It seems like we, when we circle back, right back to the training again, we talk about talk back to the uh, training at home and bringing, yep. you know, passing that training on to the kids. But man, we've been going for an hour and 16 minutes now. And I think we could probably keep on going for another two or three hours just with the stuff that we haven't covered. But to be respectful of your time, and I know the guys are trying to wrap things up outside. What's one of the messages you want to leave behind for these guys? Or what's one of the messages you want to close out with? Ooh. Um, Don't leave for tomorrow, which you can train on today. Yeah. You might not get another chance before that skill is needed. Not only save strangers, but save your own family members. You know, I, I don't know, you know, um, I'm not a put off training kind of guy. So, at, you know, guys at my department, guy, um, the Anderson Sheriff's Office that uh, I work with hate, hate me because as long as there's you know, light in the day or, or batteries in the knobs, they're going to be moving. So, yeah. um, if putting off training is not the thing to put off, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Don't put so, off training. I think it's a great message to send. So many people that will just be, Oh, we'll catch that tomorrow. There may be not, you know, there's certain things that you, you go and fit so much in a day, right? But the items that will aid you in going home to your family, or another person going home to their family should be at the top of that list, not at the bottom. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that was one of the biggest messages they pushed to us um, going through the academy. So you have to make sure that you go home at night, go yeah. home after your shift. Uh, and if you're not training, you can't be sure that that's going to happen. No. Nope. Yeah. What's the, well, we, you know, with respect to law enforcement, what's the one, one item that law enforcement officers carry that makes a difference and could make a difference in whether they or somebody else Goes at home at night. Goes home at night. Aside from your firearm, man, there's a ton of stuff. But you know, your tourniquet. Yeah, and when everybody carries them now. Yeah. You well, know, you know, when we started, so when I started, we didn't have tourniquets. I, I, about halfway through my career, we started getting tourniquet training and started issuing tourniquets. Um, but the time that I had on an actual uh, on an actual injury, 
it was all my gear that I was that I was using. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just because I'd been trained by guys like you. Well, we see, you know, uh, guys that because we go to trade shows, officers will come up and you know see the table and they're like, "What's this?" And I'm like, "It's hot air balloon. What's it? It's a target. What's it look like?" You know, back <laughs> to that. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Smart ass comment. But um, I'm like, you know, you, you carry one? No, I've never need one. I don't see why I need to carry one now. My next question is, well, how many people have you shot? Well, I've never shot anybody. Well, then you don't need your gun. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Um, we can't use what we have done as a measure of what we will do. Yeah. That's a great message. There's something good to close out on there, man. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I, uh, hesitant, you know, there for a while, um, but um, I've enjoyed it. James, I appreciate you taking time to do it, man. Passing on the message, I think this is uh, about the same as passing on the training, passing on the message, passing on your, your experiences, uh, where you've been, all you guys out there that have operated out there or had the kind of operations and training and experiences. It's real important for you guys to send that message out there and share the information. Um, I talked to uh, Nick Lavery. I don't know if you know Nick. Nick and uh, I were at Walter Reed together. Yeah. No kidding. Yep. We sh- yeah, I know Nick well. Yeah, I had a chance to sit and talk to him and said, you know, how many times have you had to tell your story? Um, and he talks about sharing the story all the yep. time because it's important because he says, there's things there that I should have done differently. And I didn't. He said, but the after actions are the most important, crucial part of any team. If you're not doing a good throw after action for your team and for yourself, yep. then there's no growth and there's nobody going to get better off of that. No, nope. uh, institutional inbreeding is what occurs yeah, when absolutely. you're just doing, you're passing on the same stuff that was passed to you and nothing's changing. Um, yeah, AARs it, for everybody in, in every aspect, not just, you know, how did you do in the room or in the structure or, you know, did you get your corners, whatnot? It's, you know, the other pieces as well. Did you, were comms made appropriately? Did you pass up the information need to be passed up in a timely manner so that people further up the chain can make the decision they need to make to better assist you in doing your mission or, you know, to take opportunities to treat individuals, to, you know, bring everything you should have brought on the mission on the mission yeah. uh, instead of, you know, leaving stuff behind because it was heavy or, you know, yep. like the Ram um, or, you know, <laughs> did you have an appropriate number of interior door charges? Yeah. Um, but yeah, AARs, are certainly important. It's funny the bringing up AARs. I uh, had a ex- little bit of an exchange with the uh, British SAS for about uh, nine months, and um, those guys are brutal in their AARs. Like yeah. everybody gets a "this is what you did wrong," yeah. and uh, it isn't what you got. You know, like a lot of times, guys are like you have to have two positives. You know, yeah. to two sustains and two changes, you know, like it's all changes. Yeah. Like you don't need to be patted on the back for what you did right. You need to be kicked in the butt for what you didn't do right. <laughs> you know, people. And I love yeah. that message. Yeah. yeah. I love that message. Uh, we, uh, my son, my son told that story. I, I don't know how, how he passed it on. He said, dad's not a fan of getting awards for doing your job. It's like, yeah. Bingo. Yeah. Yeah. That's like. The uh, the Purple Heart is an enemy marksmanship badge. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, not real happy about those. But, um, yeah. 
I'll just leave it there. <laughs> thank you. Oh, appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, quick exchange. All right. Well, thanks for being here, James. Can't thank you enough for doing this. I'm going to let the uh, camera fade out and we'll wrap it up.